This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letters 14 to 22 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Letter 14 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, March the 12th, 1768. Dear Sir, If some curious gentleman would procure the head of a fallow deer, and have it dissected, he would find it furnished with two spiracular, or breathing-places, beside the nostrils, probably analogous to the puncta lacrimalia in the human head. When the deer are thirsty, they plunge their noses, like some horses, very deep under water, while in the act of drinking, and continue them in that situation for a considerable time. But to obviate any inconvenience, they can open two vents, one at the inner corner of each eye, having a communication with the nose. Here seems to be an extraordinary provision of nature worthy our attention, and which has not, that I know of, been noticed by any naturalist. For it looks as if these creatures would not be suffocated, though both their mouths and nostrils were stopped. This curious formation of the head may be of singular service to beasts of chase, by affording them free respiration, and no doubt these additional nostrils are thrown open when they are hard run. Note. In answer to this account, Mr. Pennant sent me the following curious and pertinent reply. I was much surprised to find in the antelope something analogous to what you mention as so remarkable in deer. This animal has a long slit beneath each eye, which can be opened and shut at pleasure. On holding an orange to one, the creature made as much use of those orifices as of his nostrils, applying them to the fruit, and seeming to smell it through them. End of note. Mr. Ray observed that at Malta the owners slit up the nostrils of such asses as were hard-worked, for they, being naturally straight or small, did not admit air sufficient to serve them when they travelled or laboured in that hot climate, and we know that grooms and gentlemen of the turf think large nostrils necessary, and a perfection in hunters and running horses. Oppian, the Greek poet, by the following line, seems to have had some notion that stags have four spiracula. Quadrifidi nares, quadruplices ad respirationum canales. Writers copying from one another make Aristotle say that goats breathe at their ears, whereas he asserts just the contrary. Alcmaion does not advance what is true when he advers that goats breathe through their ears. From the History of Animals, Book One, Chapter Eleven. Letter Fifteen to Thomas Pennant, Esquire, Selborne, March the thirtieth, seventeen sixty eight. Dear Sir, some intelligent country people have a notion that we have in these parts a species of the genus Mustelinum besides the weasel, stoat, ferret, and polecat, a little reddish beast, not much bigger than a field mouse, but much longer, which they call a cane. This piece of intelligence can be little depended on, but further inquiry may be made. A gentleman in this neighbourhood had two milk-white rooks in one nest. A booby of a carter, finding them before they were able to fly, threw them down and destroyed them, 
to the regret of the owner, who would have been glad to have preserved such a curiosity in his rookery. I saw the birds myself nailed against the end of a barn, and was surprised to find that their bills, legs, feet, and claws were milk-white. A shepherd saw, as he thought, some white larks on a down above my house this winter. Were not these the Emberiza nivalis, the snowflake of the British zoology? No doubt they were. A few years ago I saw a cock-bullfinch in a cage, which had been caught in the fields after it had come to its full colours. In about a year it began to look dingy, and blackening every succeeding year it became coal-black at the end of four. Its chief food was hemp-seed. Such influence has food on the colour of animals. The pied and mottled colours of domesticated animals are supposed to be owing to high, various, and unusual food. I had remarked for years that the root of the cuckoo-pint, arum, was frequently scratched out of the dry banks of hedges and eaten in severe snowy weather. After observing with some exactness myself, and getting others to do the same, we found it was the thrush kind that searched it out. The root of the arum is remarkably warm and pungent. Our flocks of female chaffinches have not yet forsaken us. The blackbirds and thrushes are very much thinned down by that fierce weather in January. In the middle of February I discovered in my tall hedges a little bird that raised my curiosity. It was of that yellow-green colour that belongs to the salicaria kind, and I think was soft-billed. It was no parus, and was too long and too big for the golden-crowned wren, appearing most like the largest willow wren. It hung sometimes with its back downwards, but never continuing one moment in the same place. I shot at it, but it was so desultory that I missed my aim. I wonder that the stone curlew, Charadrius idicnemus, should be mentioned by the writers as a rare bird. It abounds in all the campaign parts of Hampshire and Sussex, and breeds, I think, all the summer, having young ones, I know, very late in the autumn. Already they begin clamouring in the evening. They cannot, I think, with any propriety, be called, as they are by Mr. Ray, Kirka aquas versantes, for with us, by day at least, they haunt only the most dry, open, upland fields and sheep-walks, far removed from water. What they may do in the night I cannot say. Worms are their usual food, but they also eat toads and frogs. I can show you some good specimens of my new mice. Linnaeus, perhaps, would call the species Mus minimus. Letter 16 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, April the 18th, 1768. Dear Sir, The history of the stone curlew, Charadrius idicnemus, is as follows. It lays its eggs, usually two, never more than three, on the bare ground, without any nest in the field, so that the countryman in stirring his fallows often destroys them. The young run immediately from the egg like partridges, etc., and are withdrawn to some flinty field by their dam, where they skulk among the stones, which are their best security, for their feathers are so exactly of the colour of our grey-spotted flints, that the most exact observer, unless he catches the eye of the young bird, may be eluded. 
The eggs are short and round, of a dirty white, spotted with dark bloody blotches. Though I might not be able, just when I pleased, to procure you a bird, yet I could show you them almost any day, and any evening you may hear them round the village, for they make a clamour which may be heard a mile. Edicnemus is a most apt and expressive name for them, since their legs seem swollen like those of a gouty man. After harvest I have shot them before the pointers in turnip fields. I make no doubt, but there are three species of the willow wrens. Two I know perfectly, but have not been able yet to procure the third. No two birds can differ more in their notes, and that constantly, than those two that I am acquainted with, for the one has a joyous, easy, laughing note, the other a harsh, loud chirp. The former is every way larger, and three-quarters of an inch longer, and weighs two drams and a half, while the latter weighs but two. So the songster is one-fifth heavier than the chirper. The chirper, being the first summer bird of passage that is heard, the wryneck sometimes excepted, begins his two notes in the middle of March, and continues them through the spring and summer till the end of August, as appears by my journals. The legs of the larger of these two are flesh-coloured, of the less black. The grasshopper-lark began his sibilous note in my fields last Saturday. Nothing can be more amusing than the whisper of this little bird, which seems to be close by, though at an hundred yards' distance, and when close at your ear is scarce any louder than when a great way off. Had I not been a little acquainted with insects, and known that the grasshopper kind is not yet hatched, I should have hardly believed but that it had been a locuster whispering in the bushes. The country people laugh when you tell them that it is the note of a bird. It is a most artful creature, skulking in the thickest part of a bush, and will sing at a yard distance, provided it be concealed. I was obliged to get a person to go on the other side of the hedge where it haunted, and then it would run, creeping like a mouse before us for a hundred yards together, through the bottom of the thorns, yet it would not come into fair sight. But in a morning early, and when undisturbed, it sings on the top of a twig, gaping and shivering with its wings. Mr. Ray himself had no knowledge of this bird, but received his account from Mr. Johnson, who apparently confounds it with the Reguli non Cristati, from which it is very distinct. See Ray's Philosophical Letters, page 108. The flycatcher, Stoparola, has not yet appeared. It usually breeds in my vine. The redstart begins to sing. Its note is short and imperfect, but is continued till about the middle of June. The willow wrens, the smaller sort, are horrid pests in a garden, destroying the peas, cherries, currants, etc., and are so tame that a gun will not scare them. A list of the summer birds of passage discovered in this neighbourhood, ranged somewhat in the order in which they appear. Reader's Note Common name, followed by the Linnaean name. End reader's note. Smallest willow wren. Motacilla troculus. Wryneck, Jinx torquilla. House swallow, Hirundo rustica. Martin, Hirundo urbica. Sand martin, Hirundo riparia. Cuckoo, Cuculus canorus. Nightingale, Motacilla luscina. Black cap, Motacilla atricapilla. White throat. Motacilla sylvia, middle willow wren, 
Motocilla troculus. Swift, Hirundo apus. Stone curlew, Cheradrius idicnemus. Turtle dove, Tertua aldrovandi. Grasshopper lark, Alorda trivialis. Landrail, Rallus crex. Largest willow wren, Motocilla troculus. Redstart, Motocilla finicurus. Goat sucker or fern owl, Caprimulgus europaeus. Flycatcher, Muscicapa grisola. My countrymen talk much of a bird that makes a clatter with its bill against a dead bough, or some old pails, calling it a jar bird. I procured one to be shot in the very fact. It proved to be the Sitter europa, the nuthatch. Mr. Ray says that the less spotted woodpecker does the same. This noise may be heard a furlong or more. Now is the only time to ascertain the short-winged summer birds, for when the leaf is out there is no making any remarks on such a restless tribe, and when once the young begin to appear it is all confusion. There is no distinction of genus, species, or sex. In breeding-time snipes play over the moors, piping and humming. They always hum as they are descending. Is not their hum ventriloquous, like that of a turkey? Some suspect it is made by their wings. This morning I saw the golden-crowned wren, whose crown glitters like burnished gold. It often hangs like a titmouse, with its back downwards. Yours, etc., etc. Letter 17 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, June the 18th, 1768. Dear Sir, on Wednesday last arrived your agreeable letter of June the 10th. It gives me great satisfaction to find that you pursue these studies still with such vigour, and are in such forwardness with regard to reptiles and fishes. The reptiles, few as they are, I am not acquainted with so well as I could wish, with regard to their natural history. There is a degree of dubiousness and obscurity attending the propagation of this class of animals, sometimes analogous to that of the cryptogamia in the sexual system of plants, and the case is the same as regards some of the fishes, as the eel, etc., the method in which toads procreate and bring forth seems to me very much in the dark. Some authors say that they are viviparous, and yet Ray classes them amongst his oviparous animals, and is silent with regard to the manner of their bringing forth. Perhaps they may be eso men o tokai, tokai. Reader's note, translation from the Greek. Internally they are oviparous, externally, however, they are viviparous. End of note, as is known to be the case with the viper. The copulation of frogs, or at least the appearance of it, for Swammerdam proves that the male has no penis intrans, is notorious to everybody, because we see them sticking upon each other's backs for a month together in spring, and yet I never saw or read of toads being observed in the same situation. It is strange that the matter with regard to the venom of toads has not yet been settled. That they are not noxious to some animals is plain, for ducks, buzzards, owls, stone curlews, and snakes eat them, to my knowledge, with impunity, and I well remember the time, but was not eye-witness to the fact, though numbers of persons were, when a quack at this village ate a toad to make the country people stare. Afterwards he drank oil. I have been informed also, from undoubted authority, that some ladies— ladies, you will say, of peculiar taste, took a fancy to a toad, which they nourished summer after summer for many years, till he grew to a monstrous size, 
with the maggots which turn to flesh-flies. The reptile used to come forth every evening from an hole under the garden steps, and was taken up after supper on the table to be fed. But at last a tame raven, kenning him as he put forth his head, gave him such a severe stroke with his horny beak as put out one eye. After this accident the creature languished for some time and died. I need not remind a gentleman of your extensive reading of the excellent account there is from Mr. Durham in Ray's Wisdom of God in the Creation concerning the migration of frogs from their breeding-ponds. In this account he at once subverts that foolish opinion of their dropping from the clouds in rain, showing that it is from the grateful coolness and moisture of those showers that they are tempted to set out on their travels, which they defer till those fall. Frogs are as yet in their tadpole state, but in a few weeks our lanes, paths, fields will swarm for a few days with myriads of these emigrants, no larger than my little fingernail. Swammerdam gives a most accurate account of the method and situation in which the male impregnates the spawn of the female. How wonderful is the economy of providence with regard to the limbs of so vile a reptile! While it is aquatic, it has a fish-like tail, and no legs. As soon as the legs sprout, the tail drops off as useless, and the animal betakes itself to the land. Merit, I trust, is widely mistaken when he advances that the rana arborea is an English reptile. It abounds in Germany and Switzerland. It is to be remembered that the salamandra aquatica of Ray, the water-newt or eft, will frequently bite at the angler's bait, and is often caught on his hook. I used to take it for granted that the salamandra aquatica was hatched, lived, and died in the water, but John Ellis Esquire, F.R.S., the Coraline Ellis, asserts in a letter to the Royal Society, dated June the 5th, 1766, in his account of the mud inguana, an amphibious bidets from South Carolina, that the water eft, or newt, is only the larva of the land eft, as tadpoles are of frogs. Lest I should be suspected to misunderstand his meaning, I shall give it in his own words. Speaking of the opercula, or covering to the gills of the mud inguana, he proceeds to say that the forms of these penated coverings approach very near to what I have some time ago observed in the larva or aquatic state of our English lacerta, known by the name of eft, or newt, which serve them for coverings to their gills, and for fins to swim with while in this state, and which they lose as well as the fins of their tails when they change their state and become land animals, as I have observed by keeping them alive for some time myself. Linnaeus, in his Systema Naturae, hints at what Mr. Ellis advances more than once. Providence has been so indulgent to us as to allow of but one venomous reptile of the serpent kind in these kingdoms, and that is the viper. As you propose the good of mankind to be an object of your publications, you will not omit to mention common salad oil as a sovereign remedy against the bite of the viper. As to the blind worm, Anguis fragilis, so-called because it snaps in sunder with a small blow, I have found, on examination, that it is perfectly innocuous. A neighbouring yeoman, to whom I am indebted for some good hints, killed and opened a female viper about the 27th of May. He found her filled with a chain of eleven eggs, about the size of those of a blackbird, but none of them were advanced so far towards the state of maturity as to contain any rudiments of young. Though they are oviparous, 
yet they are viviparous also, hatching their young within their bellies, and then bringing them forth, whereas snakes lay chains of eggs every summer in my melon beds, in spite of all that my people can do to prevent them, which eggs do not hatch till the spring following, as I have often experienced. Several intelligent folks assure me that they have seen the viper open her mouth and admit her helpless young down her throat on sudden surprises, just as the female opossum does her brood into the pouch under her belly, upon the like emergencies. And yet the London viper-catchers insist on it to Mr. Barrington that no such thing ever happens. The serpent kind eat, I believe, but once in a year, or rather, but only just at one season of the year. Country people talk much of a water-snake, but I am pretty sure without any reason, for the common snake, Coluba matrix, delights much to sport in the water, perhaps with a view to procure frogs and other food. I cannot well guess how you are to make out your twelve species of reptiles, unless it be by the various species, or rather varieties, of our Lacerti, of which Ray enumerates five. I have not had an opportunity of ascertaining these, but remember well to have seen, formerly, several beautiful green lacerti on the sunny sandbanks near Farnham in Surrey, and Ray admits there are such in Ireland. Letter 18 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire, Selborne, July the 27th, 1768. Dear Sir, I received your obliging and communicative letter of June the 28th while I was on a visit at a gentleman's house, where I had neither books to turn to nor leisure to sit down, return you an answer to many queries, which I wanted to resolve in the best manner that I am able. A person, by my order, has searched our brooks, but could find no such fish as the Gasterosteus pungitius. He found the Gasterosteus sculiatus in plenty. This morning, in a basket, I packed a little earthen pot full of wet moss, and in it some sticklebacks, male and female, the females big with spawn, some lamperns, some bull's heads, but I could produce no minnows. This basket will be in Fleet Street by eight this evening, so I hope Mazel will have them fresh and fair to-morrow morning. I gave some directions in a letter to what particulars the engraver should be attentive. Finding while I was on a visit that I was within a reasonable distance of Ambersbury, I sent a servant over to that town and procured several diving specimens of loaches, which he brought, safe and brisk, in a glass decanter. They were taken in the gullies that were cut for watering the meadows. From these fishes, which measured from two to four inches in length, I took the following description. The loach, in its general aspect, has a pellucid appearance. Its back is mottled with irregular collections of small black dots, not reaching much below the linear lateralis, as are the back and tail fins. A black line runs from each eye down to the nose. Its belly is of a silvery white, the upper jaw projects beyond the lower, and is surrounded with six feelers, three on each side. Its pectoral fins are large, its ventral much smaller, the fin behind its anus small, its dorsal fin large, containing eight spines, its tail, where it joins to the tail fin, remarkably broad, without any taperness, so as to be characteristic of this genus. The tail fin is broad and square at the end. From the breadth and muscular strength of the tail, it appears to be an active, nimble fish. In my visit I was not very far from Hungerford, and did not forget to make some inquiries concerning the wonderful method of curing cancers by means of toads. 
Several intelligent persons, both gentry and clergy, do, I find, give a great deal of credit to what was asserted in the papers, and I myself dined with a clergyman who seemed to be persuaded that what is related is matter of fact. But when I came to attend to his account, I thought I discerned circumstances which did not a little invalidate the woman's story of the manner in which she came by her skill. She says of herself that, labouring under a virulent cancer, she went to some church where there was a vast crowd. On going into a pew she was accosted by a strange clergyman, who, after expressing compassion for her situation, told her that if she would make such an application of living toads as is mentioned, she would be well. Now is it likely that this unknown gentleman should express so much tenderness for this single sufferer, and not feel any for the many thousands that daily languish under this terrible disorder? Would he not have made use of this invaluable nostrum for his own emolument, or at least, by some means of publication or other, have found a method of making it public for the good of mankind? In short, this woman, as it appears to me, having set up for a cancer doctress, finds it expedient to amuse the country with this dark and mysterious relation. The water-eft has not, that I can discern, the least appearance of any gills, for want of which it is continually rising to the surface of the water to take in fresh air. I opened a big-bellied one, indeed, and found it full of spawn. Not that this circumstance at all invalidates the assertion that they are larvae, for the larvae of insects are full of eggs, which they exclude the instant they enter their last state. The water-eft is continually climbing over the brim of the vessel, within which we keep it in water, and wandering away, and people every summer see numbers crawling out of the pools where they are hatched, up the dry banks. There are varieties of them, differing colour, and some have fins up their tail and back, and some have not. Letter 19 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire Selborne, August the 17th, 1768 Dear Sir, I have now, past dispute, made out three distinct species of the willow-wrens, Motacilli trochili, which constantly and invariably use distinct notes. But at the same time I am obliged to confess that I know nothing of your willow-lark. In my letter of April the 18th I told you peremptorily that I knew your willow-lark, but had not seen it then. But when I came to procure it, it proved, in all respects, a very Motacilla troculus only that it is a size larger than the two other, and the yellow-green of the whole upper part of the body is more vivid, and the belly of a clearer white. I have specimens of the three sorts now lying before me, and can discern that there are three gradations of sizes, and that the least has black legs, and the other two flesh-coloured ones. The yellowest bird is considerably the largest, and has its quill-feathers and secondary feathers tipped with white, which the others have not. This last haunts only the top of trees in high beechen woods, and makes a sibilous, grasshopper-like noise, now and then at short intervals, shivering a little with its wings when it sings, and is, I make no doubt now, the regulus non cristatus of Ray, which he says, Cantat voce stridula locustae. Reader's note. Sings with the hissing voice of locusts. End note. Yet this great ornithologist never suspected that there were three species. Letter 20 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, October the 8th, 1768. It is, I find, in zoology as it is in botany. All nature is so full 
that that district produces the greatest variety which is the most examined. Several birds which are said to belong to the north only are, it seems, often in the south. I have discovered this summer three species of birds with us, which writers mention as only to be seen in the northern counties. The first that was brought me, on the 14th of May, was the sandpiper, Tringa hippolucus. It was a cock-bird, and haunted the banks of some ponds near the village, and as it had a companion, doubtless intended to have bred near that water. Besides, the owner has told me since that, on recollection, he has seen some of the same birds round his ponds in former summers. The next bird that I procured, on the 21st of May, was a male red-backed butcher-bird, Lanius collurio. My neighbour who shot it said that it might easily have escaped his notice had not the outcries and chattering of the white-throats and other small birds drawn his attention to the bush where it was. Its craw was filled with the legs and wings of beetles. The next rare birds, which were procured for me last week, were some ring ousels, turditoquati. This week, twelve months, a gentleman from London, being with us, was amusing himself with a gun, and found, he told us, on an old yew-hedge where there were berries, some birds like blackbirds, with rings of white round their necks. A neighbouring farmer also at the same time observed the same, but as no specimens were procured, little notice was taken. I mentioned this circumstance to you in my letter of November the 4th, 1767. You, however, paid but small regard to what I said, as I had not seen these birds myself. But last week the aforesaid farmer, seeing a large flock, twenty or thirty of these birds, shot two cocks and two hens, and says on recollection that he remembers to have observed these birds again last spring, about Lady Day, as it were, on their return to the north. Now, perhaps these ousels are not the ousels of the north of England, but belong to the more northern parts of Europe, and may retire before the excessive rigour of the frosts in those parts, and return to breed in the spring, when the cold abates. If this be the case, here is discovered a new bird of winter passage, concerning whose migrations the writers are silent. But if these birds should prove the ousels of the north of England, then here is a migration disclosed within our own kingdom, never before remarked. It does not yet appear whether they retire beyond the bounds of our island to the south, but it is most probable that they usually do, or else one cannot suppose that they would have continued so long unnoticed in the southern counties. The ousel is larger than a blackbird, and feeds on haws, but last autumn, when there were no haws, it fed on yew berries. In the spring it feeds on ivy berries, which ripen only at that season, in March and April. I must not omit to tell you, as you have been so lately on the study of reptiles, that my people, every now and then of late, draw up with a bucket of water from my well, which is sixty-three feet deep, a large black warty lizard with a fin tail and yellow belly. How they first came down at that depth, and how they were ever to have got out thence without help, is more than I am able to say. My thanks are due to you for your trouble and care in the examination of a buck's head. As far as your discoveries reach at present, they seem much to corroborate my suspicions, and I hope Mr. may find reason to give his decision in my favour, and then I think we may advance this extraordinary provision of nature as a new instance of the wisdom of God in the creation. As yet, 
I have not quite done with my history of the Edicnemus, or stone curlew, for I shall desire a gentleman in Sussex, near whose house these birds congregate in vast flocks in the autumn, to observe nicely when they leave him, if they do leave him, and when they return again in the spring. I was with this gentleman lately, and saw several single birds. Letter 21 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire Selborne, November the 28th, 1768 Dear Sir, with regard to the Edicnemus or stone curlew, I intend to write very soon to my friend near Chichester, in whose neighbourhood these birds seem most to abound, and shall urge him to take particular notice when they begin to congregate, and afterwards to watch them most narrowly whether they do not withdraw themselves during the dead of winter. When I have obtained information with respect to this circumstance, I shall have finished my history of the stone curlew, which I hope will prove to your satisfaction, as it will be, I trust, very near the truth. This gentleman, as he occupies a large farm of his own, and is abroad early and late, will be a very proper spy upon the motions of these birds, and besides, as I have prevailed on him to buy the naturalist's journal, with which he is much delighted, I shall expect that he will be very exact in his dates. It is very extraordinary, as you observe, that a bird so common with us should never straggle to you. And here will be the properest place to mention, while I think of it, an anecdote which the above-mentioned gentleman told me when I was last at his house, which was that, in a warren joining to his outlet, many doors, corvi moneduli, build every year in the rabbit-burrows underground. The way he and his brothers used to take their nests, while they were boys, was by listening at the mouths of the holes, and if they heard the young ones cry, they twisted the nest out with a forked stick. Some waterfowls, viz. the puffins, breed, I know, in that manner, but I should never have suspected the doors of building in holes on the flat ground. Another very unlikely spot is made use of by doors as a place to breed in, and that is Stonehenge. These birds deposit their nests in the interstices between the upright and the impost stones of that amazing work of antiquity, which circumstance alone speaks the prodigious height of the upright stones, that they should be tall enough to secure those nests from the annoyance of shepherd-boys, who are always idling round that place. One of my neighbours last Saturday, November the 26th, saw a martin in a sheltered bottom. The sun shone warm, and the bird was hawking briskly after flies. I am now perfectly satisfied that they do not all leave this island in the winter. You judge very right, I think, in speaking with reserve and caution concerning the cures done by toads, for let people advance what they will on such subjects, yet there is such a propensity in mankind towards deceiving and being deceived, that one cannot safely relate anything from a common report, especially in print without expressing some degree of doubt and suspicion. Your approbation with regard to my new discovery of the migration of the ring ousel gives me satisfaction, and I find you concur with me in suspecting that they are foreign birds which visit us. You will be sure, I hope, not to make inquiry whether your ring ousels leave your rocks in the autumn. What puzzles me most is the very short stay they make with us, for in about three weeks they are all gone. I shall be very curious to remark whether they will call on us at their return in the spring, as they did last year. I want to be better informed with regard to ichthyology. 
If fortune had settled me near the seaside, or near some great river, my natural propensity would soon have urged me to make myself acquainted with their productions. But as I have lived mostly in inland parts, and in an upland district, my knowledge of fishes extends little farther than to those common sorts which our brooks and lakes produce. I am, etc. Letter 22 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire. Selborne, July the 2nd, 1769. Dear Sir, as to the peculiarity of jackdaws building with us under the ground, in rabbit burrows, you have in part hit upon the reason, for in reality there are hardly any towers or steeples in all this country, and perhaps, Norfolk excepted, Hampshire and Sussex are as meanly furnished with churches as almost any counties in the kingdom. We have many livings of two or three hundred pounds a year, whose houses of worship make little better appearance than dovecots. When I first saw Northamptonshire, Cambridgeshire, and Huntingdonshire, and the fens of Lincolnshire, I was amazed at the number of spires which presented themselves in every point of view. As an admirer of prospects, I have reason to lament this want in my own country, for such objects are very necessary ingredients in an elegant landscape. What you mention with respect to reclaimed toads raises my curiosity. An ancient author, though no naturalist, has well remarked that every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. From James chapter 3 verse 7. It is a satisfaction to me to find that a green lizard has actually been procured for you in Devonshire because it corroborates my discovery which I made many years ago of the same sort on a sunny sandbank near Farnham in Surrey. I am well acquainted with the South Hams of Devonshire, and can suppose that district, from its southerly situation, to be a proper habitation for such animals in their best colours. Since the ring ousels of your vast mountains do certainly not forsake them against winter, our suspicions that those which visit this neighbourhood about Michaelmas are not English birds, but driven from the more northern parts of Europe by the frosts, are still more reasonable, and it will be worth your pains to endeavour to trace from whence they come, and to inquire why they make so very short a stay. In your account of your error with regard to the two species of herons, you incidentally gave me great entertainment in your description of the heronry at Cressy Hall, which is a curiosity I could never manage to see. Four score nests of such a bird on one tree is a rarity which I would ride half as many miles to have a sight of. Pray be sure to tell me in your next whose seat Cressy Hall is, and near what town it lies. Note, Cressy Hall is near Spalding in Lincolnshire. End note. I have often thought that those vast extents of fens have never been sufficiently explored. If half a dozen gentlemen furnished with a good strength of water-spaniels were to beat them over for a week, they would certainly find more species. There is no bird, I believe, whose manners I have studied more than that of the Caplimulgus, the goat-sucker, as it is a wonderful and curious creature. But I have always found that, though sometimes it may chatter as it flies, as I know it does, yet in general it utters its jarring note sitting on a bough, and I have for many an half-hour watched it as it sat with its undermandible quivering, and particularly this summer. It perches usually on a bare twig, with its head lower than its tail, in an attitude well expressed by your draughtsman in the folio British zoology. 
This bird is most punctual in beginning its song exactly at the close of day, so exactly that I have known it strike up more than once or twice just at the report of the Portsmouth evening gun, which we can hear when the weather is still. It appears to me past all doubt that its notes are formed by organic impulse, by the powers of the parts of its windpipe, formed for sound, just as cats purr. You will credit me, I hope, when I tell you that, as my neighbours were assembled in an hermitage on the side of a steep hill where we drink tea, one of these churn owls came and settled on the cross of that little straw edifice, and began to chatter, and continued his note for many minutes. And we were all struck with wonder to find that the organs of that little animal, when put in motion, gave a sensible vibration to the whole building. This bird also sometimes makes a small squeak, repeated four or five times, and I have observed that to happen when the cock has been pursuing the hen in a toying way through the boughs of a tree. It would not be at all strange if your bat, which you have procured, should prove a new one, since five species have been found in a neighbouring kingdom. The great sort that I mentioned is certainly a nondescript. I saw but one this summer, and I had no opportunity of taking it. Your account of the Indian grass was entertaining. I am no angler myself, but inquiring of those that are what they supposed that part of their tackle to be made of, they replied, of the intestines of a silkworm. Though I must not pretend to great skill in entomology, yet I cannot say that I am ignorant of that kind of knowledge. I may now and then perhaps be able to furnish you with a little information. The vast rains ceased with us much about the same time as with you, and since we have had delicate weather. Mr. Barker, who has measured the rain for more than thirty years, says in a late letter that more has fallen this year than in any he ever attended to, though from July 1763 to January 1764 more fell than in any seven months of this year. The End of Letters 14-22 to 22 to Thomas Pennant, Esquire, in the Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White.